0: Hello and welcome to the Accelerated Culture podcast, a sonic journey through the vibrant and revolutionary sounds of the 1980s and 1990s. In this podcast, my co-host and I will dive deep into the era of new wave and alternative music, exploring the infectious beats, introspective lyrics, and groundbreaking experimentation that defined a generation and left an indelible mark on the music landscape. Join us as we unravel the stories behind the music that shaped an era. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori, and I would like to introduce a special guest co-host, my friend Scott.
1: How's it going, everybody? My name is Scott Arseniegas. Some call me Scott Free. I am a graphic designer, arts educator, and lifelong aficionado of uh, New Wave, Alternative, Goss, Industrial, and all the things that uh, the Accelerated Culture Podcast touches on.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm so happy that you're here. And uh, so you and I ran into each other in the fall at Riot Fest. It was the first time we'd seen each other for a while. So it was kind of fortuitous. And now you're here. So thank you.
1: My pleasure. Exciting to be back on the airwaves, on the intertubes, wherever it is that we knew this.
0: So I need to address the elephant in the room because I'm sure my listeners are all wondering what's going on. Rob has decided that he does not want to continue with the podcast, which makes me very sad. Tried to convince him to come back, but he has uh, other things going on right now. So good luck, Rob. I wish you all the best. Thank you for everything that you've done for the podcast. It was really good partnering with you.
1: We, the listeners, enjoyed your work, Rob, and uh, we are sure you'll do great things.
0: So you are now, Scott, the third co-host of this podcast, and I was thinking to myself, my God, this is just like guitarists in Duran Duran. So (laughs) first first we had Trey, who was Andy Taylor, and then we had Rob, who was Warren Cucurillo. And right now we have you. You are Dom Brown, who just kind of, I guess, fills in as needed. I don't know that he's considered a full-fledged member of Duran Duran. Not yet. It seems appropriate. Yeah.
1: I'll take it for sure.
0: And uh, just on a side note here, Scott, it is so nice to be working with you again, because you and I, it's been about 20 years, but you and I used to work on a magazine together.
1: That is true. Uh, I was the faculty advisor to the magazine to which you were the student editor-in-chief, and we made some interesting work happen. And I don't mean interesting in the way that I would oftentimes use for student work as a left-handed pejorative. It was actually a pretty good magazine we made together.
0: Yeah, so I think this is going to be a pretty good podcast we're going to make together, yeah?
1: Let's At hope. Least for
0: now, because you're just a guest host.
1: Special guest host. And just for those uh, wondering who the hell is this guy and what qualifies him to, to do much of anything in the podcast world, this is not my first podcast rodeo uh, for... Boy, it was uh, 2019, 2020, I believe Uh, I was the producer and a co-host of the Fly Nerd Group podcast, a podcast about uh, hip hop, comic books, sci-fi and nerd culture in general, Uh, actually co-hosted by, among others, uh, Kochi Soulstar, who was... Another student of the college at which you and I met and at which I was an instructor. So it all sort of comes together. And although we didn't know it at the time, that school turned out to be a pretty fertile, creative um, breeding ground for future yeah. problems.
0: Yeah, it really did. And, and I love the fact that we stayed in touch. I mean, because I've been out of, well, okay... My listeners, I started college at age 28, okay? So I've been out for like 20 years. But, I mean, I still stay in touch with you. I still stay in touch with a number of, you know, other people from the college. And I think it's it's just absolutely fantastic. Now, the irony of the situation is that Rob and I had actually started to record an episode about this album, Disintegration by The Cure, and our partnership disintegrated while we were recording it. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm really happy that we're finally able to do a deep dive on this album because this was such a huge, huge part of my teens, my formative years. I remember telling a friend once, he asked, you know, well, what's one album that if you want people to understand you, have them listen to? And I said, Disintegration by The Cure. I didn't even have to think about it. So how about you? What What are your thoughts on uh, on Disintegration?
1: My relationship with this Album is a little bit more complicated than yours. Yours is straightforward fandom and identification. Uh, for me, if I had to pick a Cure album for which that is the case, it would have to be the Head on the Door. Um, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss me followed that one up, and that was a hugely important album of uh, for relationships of mine at the time and setting a tone in general. Although the singles on that one were such weird pop songs that had some people scratching their head at what is The Cure doing? And then this album came out. Disintegration came out and put The Cure on the radar for the masses in a way that they had only flirted with before. Just Like Heaven, great big hit. Sure. Hot, hot, hot. Strange song for them, but made the rounds on MTV. Disintegration with its big singles became huge and the best-selling album The Cure had had to date and was the point at which I started to maybe get a little bit of Cure fatigue. And it's for reasons that we'll talk about when we get into the track-by-track breakdown. But... It is inarguably one of the quintessential alternative pop goth albums. Like, this is kind of it. Sums up the genre in a way that almost nothing else can. But also in a way it represented for me the beginning of the end of The Cure. And I look forward to going toe-to-toe with you on those very different reactions to this work of art.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Disintegration. So it came out on May 2nd, 1989. It was The Cure's eighth studio album. It did go to number 12 on the Billboard album chart and it was RIAA, certified double platinum. I think that the band were really kind of overwhelmed by a lot of the attention they were getting, you know, like now all of a sudden they're in the spotlight and also I think they were trying to return to their roots. Um, Some of their earlier stuff, like the Pornography album, was very dark. And I feel like with this album, they were trying to get back to that kind of an atmosphere. So I think half of the tracks were actually intended, I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but half the tracks were written by Robert Smith and intended to be part of a solo project that never came about. So uh, he brought those songs to the band, and I know the band collaborated on some songs as well.
1: I started listening to The Cure as a youngster. I have a few years on you, uh, but I started listening to The Cure. for They first came under my radar on uh, WLBS, uh, New Wave Station in Detroit, Michigan. And I believe we were talking at that time like the Let's Go to Bed era. Shortly thereafter, started buying albums, anything I could really get my hands on. And the early Cure, the pre-Let's Go to Bed era, was a very stripped down guitar, bass, drums, vocalist band. And then the synths get introduced and significantly changes the sound. And they go from a post-punk band into a new wave band pretty firmly. And then the darkness really creeps in, what you're talking about, with... Uh, pornography in particular right and the top a little bit more lush and dark and thick in that mode and then you know the interceding albums go a number of different directions but yes this uh, album disintegration is a return to that pornography and top era and the synths kind of take the four in a lot of ways on this album the sound unlike those earlier albums is huge it is thick and dense and sometimes murky. And those, uh, a lot of synth strings and these big, bright, screaming sounds out of the keyboards, with then a plodding rhythm section with uh, Simon Gallup on the bass and sort of these huge reverb drums. And the sound is just a massive wall of sound not in the Phil Spector sense but just like every inch of this space of this cavern that the album is taking place in is filled sonically there is no room to breathe with the exception of two singles and they are the biggest singles the band ever saw we'll get to those and we when we do the track by track but it's a really dense album and the songs can be so long and sometimes plodding but whatever we'll get to them one by one
0: (laughs) all right well so there were a couple things that were going on at the time they wrote this and the time they recorded this i understand that they recorded a lot of this in the english countryside at david gilmore's old estate robert smith had just turned 30. And I think he was having a little bit of like a midlife crisis, freaking out, thinking that he hadn't really had his, you know, his great creation, his magnum opus, right? It hadn't hit him yet. So I think a lot of that darkness got poured into the lyrics. And then there was the situation with Lal Tolhurst. So Lal and Robert were the two remaining founding members of the band. They'd been friends since childhood. And Loll was developing a very, very serious alcohol problem.
1: Not just an alcohol problem.
0: (laughs) Okay. What else?
1: Uh, Narcotics was what I also saw, but of an unspecified variety. But Loll was uh, really down in it and uh, not as it turned out, despite what the album credits might have you believe contributing much either in terms of songwriting he's credited throughout the album or in terms of actual musical contributions again credited but in hindsight or in uh, reports after the fact is said to have not really contributed much of anything and it was more out of contractual obligation uh, and respect that he is given the credit that that he was.
0: Yeah, I, I as I understand it, there's actually only one song on the album that he really did contribute to, and we will talk about that. Uh, as I understand it, the, the Robert had played some some tapes, some recordings for the band, and Lal just kind of went off. He just went ballistic and said, you know, this isn't the cure, this, this is just you. He just, like, lost his temper, just something fierce. And so Robert fired him. In a letter, he basically said, look, the rest of the band isn't comfortable around you. I'm sorry, I have to fire you from the band, which is a really kind of sad and impersonal way to end things with somebody that, you know, you've been friends with since childhood. But
1: been in this band for 10 plus years at this point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, the people that were involved on the album, so we've already mentioned Robert Smith, who is the uh, lead vocalist, and he also plays guitars, keyboards, and six-string bass. You mentioned Simon Gallup, bass and keyboards, Paul Thompson on guitars, Boris Williams on drums and percussion, Roger O'Donnell on keyboards, and Lal Tullhurst is credited with other instruments.
1: Right, which is uh, sort of damning with faint praise, I think, but... Interestingly, I did read this as well, that when uh, Lal's departure from the band was announced to the press, that Robert Smith essentially said, you never know, he will probably be back. And considering the sort of revolving door of membership that this band has had over the years by this point, uh, even Simon Gallup had been in the band and then out of the band and then in the band again. Like a not unreasonable conclusion that, yeah, he might be back if he gets his act together. But he moved on to other
0: projects. Well, he decided to sue the band, and which he later admitted was mostly out of spite. Sure. So kind of burned (laughs) that bridge. But as I understand, maybe within the last decade or so, Robert and Lyle have reconciled. Is there anything else we want to say about the album in general, or should we start listening to some of the tracks?
1: Just that it spawned the biggest hits that the group had ever seen and produced a degree of success that Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me Me had hinted at being on the horizon and that with which Robert Smith absolutely struggled. This album took the band to arena tours. And with it, the kind of pressure that being one of the biggest rock bands in the world, and certainly the biggest alternative band in the world, and it gets to the whole insanity that alternative as a label becomes, because when the alternative becomes the dominant culture, it's not an alternative to anything. But I digress. This tour, uh, the prayer tour, as the tour supporting disintegration was called, was huge. I saw The Cure play The Palace of Auburn Hills on Wednesday, August thirtieth, nineteen eighty nine, and I walked out of this show out of boredom. Really? <laughs> I actually did.
0: Oh my God, it's so
1: hard. No, and I. I looked at the set list and it's like, oh, dude, you absolutely should have stayed for that last encore. But I did not. And it gets to some of my issues with this album.
0: Okay. Well, then this is a really good point for us to start listening. So do it. The opening track of the album is called Plain Song. Let's listen to a little bit of it. love the beginning of this song with those wind chimes it's just so cool it gives me the chills but I I mean it's so beautiful and lush but that intro is two and a half minutes
1: long 2.38 vocals don't come in until 2.38 which is again just sort of a warning shot across the bow to the listener that this is going to be a thick big dense album and they are gonna take their time
0: because of that long two minute and thirty eight intro, it's a little tricky for me to edit a short snippet of the song. I, unfortunately, our listeners won't get to hear that beautiful instrumental. So go get the album, find it on Spotify, find it on YouTube, listen to it. It is amazing. It
1: is it is that?
0: Robert Smith told a French magazine in nineteen eighty nine that "Plain Song" enlightens different aspects of an obsession. Now, I don't know if that was something that was translated from French into English or if that's what he actually said. I mean, because, you know, that sounds like something he might say. What do you think of this one?
1: I, I think it is an amazing opener. It does set the tone for the album. As I said, when your first lyrics, the first words sung are, I think it's dark and it looks like it's rain, you said, and the wind is blowing like it's the end of the world, you said you know that you have entered a Cure album.
0: We're not in Kansas anymore.
1: Absolutely. And it's so cold. It's like the cold if you were dead. And you smiled for a second. I think I'm old and I'm feeling pain, you said. And it's all running out like it's the end of the world, you said. And that, my friends, is about as Robert Smith on disintegration as you could possibly hope to get, and that is right out of the gate.
0: There's something about that that just really connected with little baby Lori, though. Fifteen, sixteen, you know, you got the whole everything is awful, the world is awful, and so I just latched onto those lyrics like for dear life, you know.
1: Oh yeah, also for uh, you know, college freshmen with depressive leanings. It did resonate for sure. That said, if you had been following the arc of The Cure up to this point, just sort of weirdos in the beginning. And then you get your Love Cats era and Let's Go to Bed. This is a pretty straightforward new wave synth pop band. And then you get The Head on the Door, where they really started to gain some traction and they start to establish themselves as. Class A weirdos with this dark sensibility. You know, I had on my college freshman dorm wall a massive, absolutely massive poster from the head on the door, the whole band done up in the black light neon makeup uh-huh. with uh-huh. hair and the glowing faces and all that. That was on my wall. So I'm a dyed in the wool Cure fan already. And then they kind of get to the disintegration version of themselves where they have become almost a caricature of themselves. Robert Smith had become the Robert Smithiest he had ever been. If you follow like the evolution of man chart that shows from the stooped over monkey to the standing taller ape to the uh, homo erectus, Like, it would be the same sort of a chart, but just with Robert Smith's hair getting bigger and bigger until it reached its full, huge, voluminous mass that Robert Smith now has become a grandmotherly version (laughs) of. But the massive hair, the bright red lipstick, the smeared makeup around the eyes, like, this is Robert Smith in his Full final form and boy this album uh sort of and each of the singles and particularly their videos really showcase the weirdo that is robert smith in a big way and it was glorious to behold and also yeah almost a caricature <laughs> oh sorry uh all that rambling was to get to an actual point, not just about the look of Robert Smith, but also it had become, as the band got bigger and bigger and reached a bigger audience, started becoming really prominently featured on 120 Minutes, that it became, it became almost it's stylish to make fun of Robert Smith and of The Cure. That for people who were not themselves goths, that this almost goth clown of robert smith with the huge hair and the makeup and the lipstick and all of that and the sadness that the stereotype of the goth kid you know that what is the, who who originally said the line i wear black on the outside cuz i feel black on the inside
0: i have no idea i've never heard that before
1: But it it resonates, though, right? As you are both sitting here on Zoom, dressed in what color? Black. No color. It's black. (laughs) And that the lyrics are somber and about death and suicide and disintegration. And that this album just was like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to lean into it. And that opening track does it. And then... We get to song two, Pictures of You. And here is where we get to one of the biggest, most successful tracks this band had ever seen. Shall we hear the clip? Let's listen. All right. Track two is Pictures of You, and it was a huge one. Once again, you look at this song coming in at 7 minutes, 29 seconds. It is absolutely huge. The Cure is taking their time with this one. There are multiple different mixes, as I recall, of various lengths, but 7.29, they are not half-stepping on this one. And once again taking their time with that intro. First vocals do not come in uh, the do 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 to do, do, dos until 2.18. And the first verse coming in at 2.37. This is a band that's taking its time, hitting its stride, and playing a mid-tempo uh, 80, want to have 86 beats per minute song. It ain't it fast. It's almost plodding, but it's in a major key. And so while it has that mid tempo, almost cured dirge like thing, it is also bright and sunny. And it's a really beautiful song.
0: It's an absolutely gorgeous song. First time I saw The Cure Live was actually at Riot Fest a few years ago. And when they played this song, I literally had tears streaming from my eyes. It was just so beautiful. I I tend to feel emotions, I think, very, very strongly, more strongly than most people. But, I mean, I just could not keep it in. It just all came out. Now, the story about this supposedly, according to Rolling Stone magazine, is that when they were working on disintegration, a fire broke out in Robert Smith's room. And as he looked through the damage after the fire, he came across a collection of photos of his wife, Mary Poole. Now, that might be true. It might not be true because Robert Smith has shown that he enjoys playing with journalists and and lying. So it's a good (laughs) story. It's a good story. It was released as the fourth single off the album on March 19th, 1990. And that's a long time after the album was released. I mean, that's like almost a year, which I think just shows the staying power that this album had. I mean, this, this album just kind of grabbed onto the collective consciousness, you know what I mean?
1: February of 1990, they filmed the video for this uh, single. Uh, it was director Tim Pope. Uh, Tim Pope had actually... Right. ...sort of put the cure on the map video-wise. Their early videos, they uh, had been somewhat embarrassed of, and then t- Tim Pope came on around the Let's Go to Bed era and sort of has been their go-to video director ever since. But they recorded this in February of 1990, uh, the video. They used three Super 8 cameras and were recording in February, or shooting in February in Scotland, in Balachulish, Scotland. And Smith uh, reported of this video shoot that he had never been colder before in his life. It's a pretty straightforward video. It has that Super 8 film feel to it. Sort of that lo-fi alternative video uh, that was very much in fashion at the time of the guys standing around playing outdoors in Scotland. Perfectly good video. Hardly their best off of this uh, particular album, but worth a watch. That's all I have to say about that.
0: Okay. Except... Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) One other thing. Um, This song... And it was years after its release, but this song was the first time I recall seeing a, or rather hearing, a Cure song used in a commercial. And it was HP Printers, and it is that point at which the ad world and corporations start mining your past. Or nostalgia bait to get you to buy their products that you know that your generation has sort of made it and is kind of the driving force behind the culture now. Shout out Gen X. They thought you were slackers, they, they were not wrong.
0: I've totally forgot about those HP ads. My goodness. The song surprisingly only went to number 71 on the Billboard Hot 100, but it did go to number 19 on the US Alternative Airplay charts. There you go. And in 2011, the song was voted number 283 on Rolling Stone's The 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list. Yeah. For them. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to Tribe 3?
1: Yes, but only after saying this is one of those where it feels like the instrumentation of the song is one of those throwbacks somewhat to pornography, I, I would say even more so to the top. And... Actually, this song wouldn't feel out of place on the album that preceded Disintegration on Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me.
0: You know, all of the tracks on this album are just so beautifully produced with so many gorgeous layers of sound. Every time I listen to it, I feel like I'm picking out something different. And pictures of you, you know, from that shivery sound in the beginning and the way like the bass and the lead guitar kind of have this interplay with each other. It's just get oh, I get goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> I'm, getting goosebumps <laughs> I'm sorry. Love it. Uh, okay, so now that brings us to the next track. Yes. Which is closed down. Okay, again, Baby Lori loved this song so much. Oh my gosh, I, I, it's unusual in the way it's structured, right? Because it doesn't have like a, a verse chorus kind of thing. It's like a long instrumental, one verse, and then a huge outro, right? But it's just, ooh, it, it, it's so, so beautiful. And Robert Smith had actually said in an interview with a magazine called Rock and Folk in April of 89 that Closed Down was the key song of the album. Really? Yes. The key song on the album could be Closed Down. I think it's horrible that you become insensitive with age when you're young and naive. You always have intense feelings. All you gain with experience makes you lose that. I was really happy to see I could still cry. When recording some of these songs. So I think, in a sense, that, you know, like kind of the emotional heart of it, right? I mean, as you've said, the theme of the album is disintegration, is everything breaking down. And I mean, God, you, the lyrics of this, right? If only I could fill my heart with love. Oh. <laughs> oh. <Aww. laughs>
1: yeah. So for me, um, it, this is a short song for this album coming in at a mere four minutes, 19 seconds, <laughs> um, which for conventional pop long for The Cure and particularly for this album, relatively short one. Uh, it has sort of the same basic formula as seen in "Plain song, uh, where it's a little more, it's a little faster tempo, although much of that heavy lifting uh, is actually in just the feel from these pounding tom drums, which almost... Go back to, say, The the Hanging Garden with that sort of very active um, drum situation, but uh, definitely in a slower song. But uh, the rhythm section, Simon Gallup's bass and uh, Boris Williams' drums are really doing a lot of the heavy lifting. It's a cliche that the rhythm section is the backbone of the band, but in this case, they really are the backbone of this song, the whole driving force behind it. And the vocals wait a long time to kick in, in a four-minute, 19-second song, once again, after the two-minute mark, until you actually get to hear Bob Smith. These big, sweeping, singing, soaring uh, synths, uh, much like we saw in Plain Song as well. And yeah, If Only I Could Fill My Heart With Love is, uh, once again, sort of Robert Smith being so very... Emo before Emo was Emo. Uh, There you go. Yeah. You know, the sad, sad Robert Smith.
0: Thinking of the song length. Yeah, as you said, this is one of the shorter ones on the album. The other big album I was listening to at the same time was Doolittle by the Pixies, which is the exact opposite because I don't think there's any songs that are longer than two minutes. And incidentally, I really, really do want to do an episode on Doolittle.
1: Yeah. the other one, and it wouldn't come out for a few months yet, but uh, Violator was yeah, 90. yeah absolutely immense in that era for me. And continues to this day to be yes. an important album in my life. It's one that has never gone out of heavy rotation.
0: So you're, you get to introduce Love Song.
1: Oh, okay. I didn't even bother taking notes on Love Song because it is so so fully ingrained into pop culture. It has always like from, from its release as a single, it has been, well, sort of the love song. Okay, so here's the thing. When you are an 18 or 19-year-old music aficionado who has been a champion of new wave music from the time that your consciousness really came online and you started buying music for yourself, and you did that through times where it was not easy to do. I was a teen throughout the 80s and was championing your Cure and your Depeche modes and your in excesses and your New Orders through the era of hair metal. And it was not easy to hold that line and to continue to defend it in the face of a culture gone weirdly masculine, but in a hair metal way that turned everything on its head. And my point in all of this is... I so badly wanted people to love the music that I loved. And here's then the contradiction of being that young proponent of the new wave is when it happens, you're like, what the hell happened here? Everybody likes my music now, and it's not just mine, and you don't want the band you love to have to toil in obscurity forever, but also when their single becomes the song that people are playing at weddings and at dances and it's sort of this band that had always been so dark and mopey and this vehicle for expressing your teenage angst suddenly is writing the sappiest love song you may ever have heard the most straightforward love song it is a conundrum it's a real it really makes you think did I did I want this success for this band? And you know you can't begrudge them it. But in this same way, Robert Smith will tell you that this is the first time that he was able in the 10 plus years of this band to embrace his emotions and to very simply and straightforward, write them down without irony, without darkness. This was a straightforward love song that he wrote as a gift to his wife, Mary. And he was later quoted as saying, it is the cheapest anniversary gift I've ever given her. And, Kapow, the biggest single the band had had to date. True?
0: Yes, uh, it was actually the band's only top 10 entry on the Billboard Hot 100.
1: From uh, Far Out magazine, a UK magazine. Ironically, it seems that the jump from the darkness of alternative music endeared the band to fans worldwide. It spent seven weeks on the UK charts and even reached number two on the American singles chart. In The Curious Join the Dots compilation in 2004, Smith lamented, I have to admit that I was actually a bit upset that it stopped at number two. He admitted I never got to see what it would really have done with a number one single. And never one to mince words. Smith has also been critical of his love song since its release. When relating it to, to Disintegration, he explained, I thought it was the weakest song on there, and suddenly it went to number two in America. It was kept off the top by, like, Janet Jackson. I thought of all the songs I'd written this is the one that cracks through, it was quite disappointing. I had always heard that he hated it, and no interview that I have read uh, can corroborate that. That quote is the most damning one I've seen, and it's not even that damning, it's just, boy, it would have been cool if one that represented us a little bit more had been the one that really made it to the top or as close to the top as they would ever come. Yes. But it is a very beautiful love song.
0: It's gorgeous. And God, yeah, can you imagine Mary Poole? I mean, being the muse immortalized <laughs> in this song, right? I mean, oh my God, what, what woman wouldn't love that? The band actually did not want this song to be a single. And their manager, Chris Perry, really fought the band on this one. According to keyboardist Roger O'Donnell, I remember there being very heated discussions about it being released. We didn't really like it that much. And it went on to be the most successful single in the band's history. So they did release it as the second single off the album. Uh, They released it on August 28th, 1989. And you are correct. It did reach the top two, number two position in October of 89.
1: Yeah. And this song is very unlike the rest of the album. Um, Not just with that sort of unabashed happiness of being in love, but also instrumentation wise. I've been talking a lot of the tracks that are this really dense, huge reverb in a cavern full of sound, and this one is spare and minimal in a way that harkens back to much earlier days of the band. A simple drum line, that very simple, uh, minimal organ-like keyboard chord progression, simple strumming of a guitar, simple bass line. There is just not that much to it, but it lets that... Beauty of the simple lyrics about love shine through. It's not that complicated because it doesn't need to be.
0: I have here in my notes: drums and the bass really anchor this one, with Roger's keyboard providing a consistent thread throughout the song. So, yeah,
1: and absolutely, and uh, Simon Gallup's bass line, like, it's lively. There is it's dancing around that bass line the whole time. Once again, the backbone of the song, it really is the driving force behind it. And everything else is pretty spare and minimal by comparison.
0: Less is more. As one of my professors once taught me.
1: That guy sounds like a genius. (laughs) Well, if I
0: see him, I'll tell him you said so.
1: Yeah, you should do that. Tell him (laughs) I said that.
0: (laughs) Okay, so that brings us now to track five. Last Dance. Let's listen.
2: i you came. I'm so
1: So, uh, that is a bit from Last Dance. What are what are your thoughts, Laurie?
0: That's what I really noticed. And Robert Smith has this way, and I, I, I know I mentioned this in our episode on Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me too, but Robert Smith has this way of kind of half singing, half speaking his vocals. It's really very distinctive and very unusual, and I made the mistake once of trying to sing a Cure song at karaoke, and... Can't do it because I can't get that kind of half speaking, half singing thing.
1: And even when it's full on singing, it's got that sort of almost whine and sometimes the little shrieks and coos that kind of nobody else but Robert Smith can do. Yes,
0: <laughs> yes. So Robert told a Dutch magazine called Or. last dance is about the disappointment I felt after a meeting with someone from old times who's not anymore like he or she used to be. And then there's that beautiful, beautiful line of the song, a woman now standing where once there was only a girl.
1: Yeah, this is the uh, the interpretation that I read of this is that sort of heartbreak of encountering someone who you used to know and love and that realizing there's nothing there anymore and there never will be and that this is truly over yeah. a thing of the
0: it's really a universal kind of theme, isn't it? I mean, it's something we can all relate to.
1: All been there, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is another one of those tracks that follows what becomes a bit of a formula on this album. Uh, it's that mid-tempo thing. It does feel like a bit of a return to pornography in the top, at least in my estimation. The synths aren't quite as room-fillingly huge. They're just sort of a background texture in this one. But again, it's that mid-tempo thing. And I think if if I'm looking back and thinking back to that Palace of Auburn Hills show in 1989, it's that the energy, I guess you don't go to a Cure show expecting a party, but some of the tracks do have that sort of funereal vibe to it it is disintegration after all. And this is the last dance and it is sort of the funeral for that relationship. But this one dragged a bit for me. I will not.
0: Thank hey, well, you. behind <laughs> your hands just saying that? No, I, I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree. It does kind of drag a little bit. I think maybe I'm not even go so far as to say this is my least favorite song on the album. Now, that being said, there is not a bad track on this album as far as I'm concerned. This is strong from start to finish. By by saying this is my least favorite track, I mean, that's like, you know, coming in third in the Olympics, is still like pretty freaking amazing, right?
1: There's not so. a dud on the album, to be sure. It's just there is a bit of a formula at times, and this one doesn't particularly stand out sonically the content of the lyrics is really where it's at but it, it's not a standout track it's pretty good and if that's the worst you can say you're dealing with a pretty good album at least very good album
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. what's next
1: right next up another monster single from this album and I do mean monster literally because uh, Spider-Man is having Robert Smith for dinner tonight Uh, The track is, of course, Lullaby. For me, the memory that really pops up when I think of Lullaby is of that video where I was saying that the video for pictures of you was relatively straightforward. Lullaby is a high concept song with a high concept video. And again, it was the cartoon of Robert Smith, stars front and center in this one as Robert Smith uh, lies in his bed. Uh, singing about this dream of the Spider-Man ghostly drummer and guitar player covered in cobwebs playing at the foot of the bed and outside the window. And the Spider-Man or eventually the bed transforming into the spider and devouring him is just an iconic moment of alternative video of this era.
0: Another Tim Pope video?
1: That's another Tim Pope video, I'm quite certain. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, I, you know, I, over the years, really speculated a lot about what this song was actually about. And I was always looking for some kind of deeper meaning that this was a metaphor for something.
1: Oh, the metaphors abound that people came up with in their fan oh, theory. And, right.
0: and my, mine were pretty dark. All right. <laughs> and yeah. But Robert actually wrote in the liner notes of Galore, When I was really young, I had a very strange uncle, also called Robert, who delighted in finding as many ways to scare me witless as he could. One of his favorites was to whisper grim bedside stories into my ear, stories that often related the twisted deeds of a horrible boy-eating creature called simply the Spider-Man. One night, he actually went so far as to climb through my bedroom window after the lights had been put out. I screamed for what seemed like days. The Spider-Man stories ended that night, but my fear of the dark and spiders persisted for quite some time. So Uncle Robert sounds like an asshole, first of all.
1: But thank you, Uncle Robert, for producing one of the great works of The Cure's uh, catalog.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So this one was released as the third single in the U.S. Uh, The singles were released in a different order in the U.K., Uh, I think it came out sometime in December of 89, and this one only went to 74 on the Billboard Hot 100. But, again, delighting goth fans everywhere at dance clubs, so... um,
1: And it's a staple of Halloween mixtapes and uh, playlists to this day. If you're looking for a song that evokes the spooky, look no further than Lullaby
0: pretty sure you played this on the trolley of terror one year
1: that absolutely sounds like me yeah <laughs>
0: memories the trolley of terror
1: oh yeah we we threatened to make a return uh, uh to have the trolley of terror make another run uh, maybe this will be the year
0: Ooh, nice we could do like a tie-in with the podcast I like that uh-oh Well, so I was listening to this again today on my way home from work, and the part that I always perk up at is towards the very end, tambourine, where it's almost kind of like a stinger when he sings about, I feel like I'm being eaten by a thousand million shivering furry holes. And it like reminds me of like a a rattle of a rattlesnake or like, you know, like a, a venomous animal of some sort. And I love that. That's just like a neat little, little touch.
1: Oh, the production details and the arrangement is top notch on this. Like, again, I've been talking about this huge, dense sonic cavern that this album takes place in. And this song is one of the outliers where it's a little more spare, certainly atmospheric and cold. And it has that nightmare fuel feel, but in a much more stripped down way. And those pizzicato strings, the plucked uh. violins, then with the uh, bigger, soaring, uh, synth string line, or might be real strings, I can't say I wasn't there, but still, um, it's unlike those much denser, chewier songs, and that sort of openness lets uh, your imagination fill in the blanks, I think.
0: Is it my imagination, or am I hearing, like, a sample of a tuba? I swear I hear a tuba sample in
2: this.
1: <laughs> I'm willing to believe it. They threw a lot of engineering and... Uh, instrumentation at the production of this whole album. So yeah, this is a band at the height of their powers. If Bob Smith wants a uh, tuba, oh, you know he's it. going
0: to get a tuba. Yeah.
1: I don't know that he did on this one, but I'm willing to believe it.
0: Okay. Well, I'm speculating. If anybody happens to know for sure, hit me up. Lori at acceleratedculturepodcast.com Please. Do we have anything else we want to say about Lullaby?
1: Honestly, I think we've covered it. This is another one that has always since it came out it has been in rotation for uh alternative stations for halloween playlists if nothing else it will always make a comeback in october as long as gen x gonna say anything about it
2: yes yeah
0: okay so the next track was the first single off the album at least here in the states and that is fascination street let's listen So what do you think, Fascination Street?
1: Right. This is a mid-tempo banger of a track, if a mid-tempo track can be a banger. It follows that formula. It is another one of the long songs from the album, and it is a song with a whole lot of instrumental intro. This one just keeps on going. The... Version of the album that I'm seeing has it coming in at 517, but Robert Smith's made some crazy extended remixes of this one. And those are definitely worth checking out because it is a groove, and more of that groove really does tend to work in this case. This was the first single, definitely a showcase song, and it is a great groove. Subject matter wise, weirdly straightforward for The Cure. Song that is stereotyped about uh, the doom and the gloom and the emotional despair and dark dark themes. Fascination Street for having that dark sort of atmospheric feel to it is, at least according to the interviews that I read, a song about going out on the town.
0: <laughs> Specifically, Bourbon Street in New Orleans.
1: Exactly. Um, Have mm-hmm. the- that I really enjoyed here. A generic song about the often cynical delights of experiencing a new city nightlife, based loosely on one particular band adventure in New Orleans, 1985. Bourbon Street, the cliché, perhaps. I believe that was from liner notes of Galore, or some collection. But yeah, it's about going out and getting dumb with your friends in a new town, and I can respect that as a big fan of going out and getting dumb with my friends
0: (laughs) oh god memories there oh yeah (laughs) are either of us ever allowed back into that what which theater was it that we're banned from
1: why you
0: okay all right
1: i have been back only recently (laughs) i don't want to put us on their radar
0: okay all right (laughs) so i'm not mentioning the name of the theater but yes we were banned from this theater (laughs) What the? You found out about that, didn't you?
1: <laughs> Although I definitely did not. I've wanted to see so many shows there over the years, and people would be like, We're going to see this show. And I'm like, I can't. You can't. Yeah, I'm not allowed in there. What? Yeah, there's a story, and I'm not going to tell it. Oh, stand up. Literally, last year did I go back for the first time.
2: <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm keeping that
0: in. I'm sorry. I'm keeping that in
2: there. Um,
0: (laughs) all right. Where was I? Okay. So this was released as the first single on April 18th, 1989. And it was also the band's first song to hit number one on the newly created billboard modern rock chart. Modern. It went to 46 on the pop chart and it was not released as a single in the UK, which struck me as a little bit strange. So there's so much again going on with this song that I love. And the feedback sounds, it's so gritty. I love it, right? Those
1: whistling, chirping sounds that sort yes. of chime through the beginning. Um, again, it's got that sonic density thing that I've been talking about all along.
0: Yeah. But that bass line, though, it's that bass line that gets me. I mean, I feel it in the base of my spine. It is just, ooh, it's so good.
1: Yeah, and the counterpoint between that driving relentless bass line and then that like the keyboards on this album are really allowed to take lead sometimes because there's confidence of this juggernaut of a uh, rhythm section that is just making it move forward so that the other instruments get to play and experiment through that and get to shine with melodies and counterpoints and it's this this is a song that really has them at the peak of their groove making abilities
0: when you were talking about the keyboard the word that comes to mind is plucky it's a yep. <laughs> it's yeah it's, it's yeah uh, absolutely gorgeous song i think this was a great choice for their lead track i remember watching the premiere of the video on mtv and i was just completely mesmerized I don't remember any specifics about the video. I just remember, just like I was just in awe. So,
1: absolutely, yeah. And this was the lead single and the lead video. And if anybody had forgotten that they were dealing with a band of of dark figures, of doom clowns, of Mm -hmm. whatever, however you want to characterize this band this visually striking band in black with the hair and the whole look like this was a warning shot across the bow to uh the states that this band is about to be a much bigger deal
0: wow that's a good quote i like that uh so somebody recently pointed out to me i had no idea this was actually Featured on a soundtrack of an indie film called Lost Angels. And I looked it up. i never heard of it. But one of the Beastie Boys was in it. You're really into them.
1: Yeah, that would <laughs> have to be Adam Horowitz, uh, Ad Rock. Okay. Uh, he was one of the three who uh, was and continues to uh, appear as an actor. Um, what Do you have any idea when Lost Angels came out?
0: 89, same year as Disintegration. And Donald Sutherland is in it.
1: Sure.
0: yeah I know really really obscure movie directed by somebody named Hugh Hudson I'd never heard of it
1: had so. I heard of it I would have gone to see it because at that point I was in full Beastie Boys fanatic mode uh, but never heard of that one but oh. you're you're getting uh, their music out there for sure yeah wow and this song is uh, this song has a sort of cinematic feel I could absolutely oh, this working in a Moody, establishing uh, opening montage or something for a movie.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it really kind of paints a picture mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the next track is called Prayers for Rain. Let's listen. Okay, so first thing I want to say before we even get into what we think of this one is I hear lots of backwards tracks on this. Hmm. There, there's instrumentation being played backwards. I think I hear at least two different tracks that are being played backwards.
1: Yeah, so for me, this one is another one of those that feels like a. it could be off of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss me or even going as far back as the top or pornography. It has echoes of even like sinking from the head on the door. But yeah, I think what you are hearing there, if we're hearing the same thing, is at the very least some reverse reverb coming in. But also there's like a sitar sort of thing happening or even like a hurdy-gurdy, but like this sort of drone that feels like it's coming at you backwards. Uh, Again, that sonic density thing that happens throughout. This for me is one of my favorite tracks on the album. Not a big hit. But that sort of atmospheric moodiness, those sort of droning touches that then are counterpointed by some of the melodic lines that come in later, both guitar and keyboard. Yeah, I, I, I really dig this track.
0: I I enjoy it, obviously, not as much as you do, but I do definitely enjoy it. Um, a music reviewer named Ned Raggett calls Prayers for Rain the heart of disintegration, an evocative wounding portrayal of emotional desolation.
1: You know, it is... This one, actually, I did take a note or two on lyrically. I I, I absolutely agree with uh, Ned... What, Ned what was it? Ned Raggetts. Ned Raggetts. Um, you fracture me, your hands on me, a touch so plain, so stale it kills. You strangle me, entangle me, in hopelessness and prayers for rain. I deteriorate I live in dirt, and nowhere glows, but drearily and tired, the hours all spent on killing. Robert Smith really going for it with the hopelessness. If you want a good wallow, man, this track has it for you. And again, this is where I was conflicted about the cure by this point, because it's almost a caricature of that music of sadness that they had become emblematic of but it's just so perfect at it yeah
0: yeah okay I gotcha I'm not disagreeing do you want to introduce the next song
1: absolutely we are looking at the same deep water as you let's hear it
2: kiss me goodbye I
0: So nine minutes and what, 19 seconds?
1: I got 9.23, but well over the nine minute mark. They are taking their time with this one. And it is a sonic journey.
0: Yeah. So Rolling Stone magazine describes it as a nine minute song about an intense love affair that seems hopelessly doomed. Swimming in the same deep water as you is hard the shallow drowned lose less than we
2: yeah that's,
0: that's i was gonna say that's deep but that would sound like i'm making a pun <laughs> so um robert smith also told Orr magazine that the song is about the expectations people have from you and how you never can live up to those expectations i found more quotes from robert please okay So he told Spin Magazine in July of 89 that he considers this song to be very special and personal. He said, I'm really proud of what we have done. In my mind, there's a little part of me with Cure songs in it, and it's got Siamese Twins, Faith, Figurehead, 17 Seconds, and now this new track, The Same Deep Water As You, has gone straight into that part of me. Even if this album fails, it doesn't matter. It's been worth it. When I was singing a song off the new album, The Same Deep Water As You in the studio, I was completely overcome for about 15
1: minutes. Robert, can not even do it to himself.
0: Yeah. So it's the longest song on the album. And despite that, and despite the fact that it was never released as a single, it was still voted the number seven best cure song in a 2016 Rolling Stone readers poll, beating out 28 of the band's 32 UK top 75 bits. Mm. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of thinking about, again, the sequence of the album here. So we came from Prayers for Rain, now Same Deep Water as You, which has some sound effects. Somebody told me that it was supposed to be waves crashing on the shore, but it's to me like thunder. I mean, I guess probably they sound very similar. So, I mean, there's like rain sound effects in the song. There's like this thunder or maybe it's waves crashing. I'm not sure which. But I'm wondering, like, were his prayers for rain answered that he's now drowning?
1: Yeah, it's a careful what you pray for thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: As far as instrumentation on this one goes, this is one that falls into that kind of formula I have been going back to. Uh, It's sort of mid-tempo dirge, the droning bass and these huge reverb drums. Uh, the soaring string synths, and it goes on and on and on. I don't think this one wears out its welcome like, uh, like I was talking about earlier. You wouldn't think drowning would take this long.
0: Wow.
1: <laughs>
0: wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, my word.
1: I and, mean, you know, uh, just from—it's another one of those where, again— you know, I guess if you're doing a song that's over nine minutes long, you must be taking your time with everything. But yeah, a minute 30 until the vocals come in. Um, they are willing to set that mood and take their sweet time doing it. And again, it's it's another one that features that rhythm section.
0: You know, all of these songs that we're talking about where we're saying, you know, the, like Pictures of You, this one, the next track that we're going to talk about, they're all very, very long, very heavy on instrumental parts. Mm-hmm. but... I don't feel that any of it could could come out, you know? I don't feel, like it's like, to me, every note is so important to these songs that if you were to shorten it or, or, you know, it it just, it loses something.
1: Well, I mean, when you said this one wasn't a single, it's like, I'm not sure how you'd make a radio edit of a nine minute track. Like, what do you condense that down to? It's that long because it needs to be that long. And, yeah, I, I will agree.
0: Okay. So then that leads us to the next track, Disintegration.
2: Oh. My dreams starts to just let go. My heart
1: Okay, so Disintegration. This is the title track of the album. Why is this the title track of the album? Why did they name the album after this?
0: According to Rolling Stone, Robert Smith turned 30 while working on Disintegration and he was unsure if carrying on with the cure was a good idea. He was also doing a lot of hard drugs and decided it would be best if he didn't really talk to anyone. All of this led to some very dark moments on the album, most notably on the title track, which is essentially an acknowledgement that his drug addiction may end his life. Robert Smith also told War Magazine, it's my scream against everything falling apart and my right to quit with it when I want to. So that's that line, screaming like this in the hole of sincerity, screaming it over and over and over, no?
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely am willing to believe that. What I had read about this album uh, said that Robert Smith was uh, addressing the uh, sometimes copious amounts of cocaine that had entered the production process in their career and that needed to end. Mm, let's see here. A couple lines that leap out at me from this one. And mouth and eyes and heart all bleed and now the end of my wonderful existence. Clearly there is massive change that he is alluding to and trying to work through in this song. It is disintegration. It is things falling apart. Although, again, this is a band at the height of its powers. They are as big as they have ever been, and they are creating one of their true masterworks. So just because it's a disintegration and just because it's a seismic change, doesn't necessarily mean that this end is the end. Uh, more of a metamorphosis, if you will. Hmm.
0: Wow, that's deep.
1: Oh, I'm a deep man.
0: <laughs> okay, then answer me this: What is his party piece that he keeps referring to in this song? That that those two words are like, hmm. Just like all my party piece,
1: yeah, I'm looking through I'm looking through yeah
0: I Starts... mean my, my mind is going you know where my mind is going you know me well enough.
1: <laughs> you know We're you know where bad. my mind is going <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's just gonna let go his party piece though uh boy yeah i I do not have it um but I leave you with photographs, pictures of trickery, stains on the carpet, and stains on the scenery. Songs about happiness, murmured in dreams, and we both us knew how the ending would be.
0: Boy, this really is Robert Smith at his peak songwriting. It really is.
1: Yes, uh, although intentionally cryptic as well. Like there's deep meaning, but.
0: <laughs> well, what do you want him to sing? You want him to sing cocaine. <laughs>
1: No, but it would be an interesting cover. Let's see it working.
0: No. Absolutely.
1: Okay. I well, again, I I I can't dig into these lyrics and come up with any meaningful interpretation that I think is gonna resonate with anybody. But it's in terms of the sound that this song gives you a whopping eight minutes and twenty seconds of. I don't know, I think this is the sound that sets the scene for some of what we're going to hear going forward from The Cure in subsequent efforts in the early 90s. You can really hear a through line from this to Burn that would appear on the soundtrack to The Crow. Uh, Sonically, instrumentation-wise, again, that driving rhythm section groove. Yeah, I I I think this feels like sort of a next... song for them and I guess that may be what he's kind of alluding to with the change that is coming
0: yeah the metamorphosis that you referenced yeah
1: let's see here next track is Homesick Uh, let's give it a listen
2: So just one more, just one more go, inspiring the desire to never go home.
1: Or night.
0: So there's another like three minute, 15 second intro to this song. It reminds me of Elijah by New Order. This is actually one of the two bonus tracks on the CD and cassette release. So if you had this on vinyl, you probably didn't have this song. This is the one song on the album, Scott, that Lal Tolhurst actually did contribute to their songwriting, even though he's got credit on all of the tracks. Apparently, when Robert Smith realized how much Lal had contributed to this song, he threatened to take it off the album because he was so pissed off at Lal because of the alcoholism and the big blowout. Roger O'Donnell, the new keyboard, is the guy who was recruited to take Lal's place. And Simon Gallup didn't want Lal to feel left out. So they reworked the song a little bit. I guess the original working title of the song was The Tale of the Lonely Badge.
1: The Tale of the Lonely, what now? Badge. B A D G
0: E. Badge.
1: That makes more sense. Then what? Nothing.
0: Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Robert Smith shared with Orr magazine that Homesick is about the attraction of forbidden fruits.
1: I'm willing to believe this, because why would, why would he make a thing like that up? All right, so we are at the second-to-last track of the album with Homesick. And my my notes on this one are relatively minimal. Uh, and it is, um, I gotta say, this album has started to drag for me. <laughs> um, You know, it's, I don't think it's one of the strongest tracks on the album, and it is near the tail end of it, and in 80s, 90s album form, really just albums in general, that is oftentimes where they will put the least Strong content. Yes. Um,
0: and I mean, the fact that they were bonus tracks, right?
1: Yeah. I, I don't have specifically bad things to say about this one, but it was the one where it's just like, eh, I feel like we're not treading new territory sonically on the album. And if it is, was it a bonus track, you say?
0: Yes. Because there wasn't enough space on the vinyl LP. So this one and the next track were we'll omitted. So the fact that they decided to omit these, I think, supports what you just said, that maybe these were considered the weaker tracks. Uh, My understanding uh, is they would typically put the strongest tracks, like the first one or two, because they wanted DJs and like AOR people to, you know, listen to the first tracks and then realize that, yeah, this is a smash, because they never get to the very end, right?
1: You got to come out swinging. Yeah. Best forward. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So then, the other bonus track, Scott.
1: Yes. It's called Untitled. It's um, called
0: Untitled.
1: Yeah. Well, let's give that a listen.
2: Holesly drift in the eyes of. I said what I wanted to say to you. Never quite managed the words to. Make-
1: Yeah. See, for me, um I am glad that in the wake of Homesick, which for me was not a track that particularly did it for me, I do think that Untitled is a much stronger track and a fine way to close this album. There's a warmth and almost optimism to it, sonically at least. Again, they do not they do not skimp on the length. Album closer coming in at a solid six thirty-two. And to my mind, it's just a much stronger track.
0: No, I, I agree with you on this. And, you know, the first thing that I noticed was actually the harmonium. Absolutely. Because my Grandpa Joe used to have a harmonium, so that has like a pleasant association for me. And then you've uh, got something very unusual going on with the drum beat. It's a very unusual beat. I don't know what the uh, musical term is for it. And then this, these gongs, you've got this shimmering kind of gong sound. It's like, ooh, you know, it's it's really, really amazing. And Robert Smith has actually called this song a hopeful song in a hopeless world.
1: Yeah, it checks out. It has that sort of warmth and almost optimism that I was talking about, which is yeah. not something you get a lot of in The Cure in general and in this album in particular.
0: Yeah. So, interestingly enough, Robert Smith has said that this song is very emotionally difficult for him to perform live. Interesting. Yeah. Playing Untitled was actually quite difficult for me because it's this song that has a lot of emotional baggage isn't the right word. It's just that for me, it's a very important song. It proved very difficult, actually, for me to sing it convincingly to myself because I had to put myself back into a time and a place where I was very, very unhappy. Then I found it quite difficult, but it was a good show.
1: Yeah, for someone who is in a happy relationship at the peak of his career I could see how getting yourself back into the mindset where these are the lyrics you're writing could be difficult Uh, never quite said what I wanted to say to you never quite managed the words to explain to you never quite knew how to make them believable and now the time has gone another time undone Uh, it's a beautiful song of loss. But again, musically, it has this bright and hopeful feeling. But within the context of this sonic density that I've been talking about this whole time, it is a thick song, but with this brightness that gives you hope. And I think it is a great way to go out as an album.
0: You're right. There's this very interesting juxtaposition between the lyrics and the... the... Not, not upbeat, but the, yeah, the, the, the brighter sound of the, the music itself. Absolutely. Absolutely phenomenal way to end the album. And this album with the two bonus tracks is like 72 minutes almost.
1: Maxed out the CD, did they?
0: It, yes, they did. It's just just under 72 minutes and it doesn't feel like it to me. Every time I listen to it, it just seems like it goes by so quickly. It does not feel... You know, if you tell somebody, you know, you're going to be sitting through a 72-minute album, they'll be like, what? But it just, it it just, no, but it it zooms by. It's just the whole thing from start to finish is is perfection. I I love it.
1: I think the way to sell them on it is, it's a short album. There's only 11 tracks.
2: (laughs) Oh,
0: you're evil. You're evil. Some of them are
1: nine and a half minutes long. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: This was just such an important part of my teen years and I still find myself going back to this, you know, constantly and there's something just really comforting, like to wrap yourself in it and, you know, just feel, you know? Yeah,
1: I mean, I I have a different relationship to this album, as we've said from the beginning. This is not, this has not historically been one of the albums that I go to and listen to start to finish myself. And I think it's because it was so huge that it was always there. Yeah. I didn't need to go revisit it. It would come to me. If nothing else, you listen to an alternative radio station or you listen to, say, First Wave or Lithium on Sirius. You listen to WXRT in Chicago, one of the great radio stations. You don't have to wait too long before you are going to hear Fascination Street or Love Song. Like, it's gonna come to you. And then some of the deeper tracks uh, I do still revisit, but this album became so huge. And it was everywhere at the time and has never fully left the rotation, at least from some of its major highlights, pictures of you, you still hear it. And there is a comfort to that. And again, it was the point at which one of the bands that I had been listening to nearly from their beginning, or at least well before they had achieved mainstream success, where they just broke out and became one of the biggest and most respected rock bands out there. And even if it wasn't an album that I necessarily felt like I had to constantly revisit, it was an album that I always had a lot of respect for and one that I'm always happy to hear.
0: Nice. That's a good, that's a, that's a good way to end it. So how are you liking the co-pilot seat? Pretty good. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, I think it's fun and, uh, I I tried to get up to speed. I think I get a little better how I could have more to say. Uh, but, that- you know, an album that I am more intimately familiar with, I think I could do more with.
0: So, can I twist your arm into coming back for another episode?
1: Happily. Yeah,
0: All right. So, I think for our next episode, we're going to close out 1989 with do Little. do Little by the Pixies. And you're on board for that. I am down. I am excited. And then Scott, you and I can move on to nineteen ninety because uh, I know you are itching to do Violator by Depeche Mode.
1: Oh yeah. That yeah. is that is one of my all-time favorites. So awesome. yeah, i happily down happily down to do that.
0: So I've got you locked in for the next two episodes. Ha ha.
2: Yeah. yeah. Very
0: All right. Well, hey, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. We'll be back in a couple weeks to talk about the pixies
1: do little that's exciting
0: thank you very much for listening please check us out on the web at acceleratedculturepodcast.com you can send us a message and hey maybe we'll read it on an episode it's a goodbye from me
1: and from me Scott Free keep listening we'll see you soon